Well, open, if you would, to Psalm 5. The fifth Psalm. To the chief musician with flutes, a Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Give ear to our words, Father. Hear us when we pray. We do pray against the wicked. And we pray against the wickedness in our own hearts. It doesn't listen. Help us to listen. Free us from distraction. Focus our hearts on the words of this psalm. Give me the grace to speak powerfully to your people. We might hear and live. Thank you. The words your son speaks to us are spirit and they are life. Bless us with those words then tonight. In his name we ask. Amen. Well, two weeks ago we saw Psalm 4, which encourages us to engage with the wicked in an overtly evangelistic way. Tell the wicked, don't sin, fear God, believe. Put your trust in the Lord. Psalm 5 seems to be a response to this in some ways, as the king stops trying to engage with the wicked and instead simply talks to God about them. He doesn't directly address the wicked at all, but he prays to God about the wicked and says, Lord, destroy them, cut them off, save your people. So this is a prayer against the wicked. And as a prayer against the wicked, it tells us a lot about prayer. It tells us some things, some things that prayer does, some reasons that prayer gives, where prayer is to be made, what things one can ask in prayer, and the confidence that you have when you pray. So we'll look at all of these things. We'll see the king's basic petitions. Reject the wicked, hear me, lead me straight out of their presence, 
into yours. Such is the king's prayer. He begins with three pleas for God to listen. Give ear to my words. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. Give ear, consider, give heed. The psalmist really wants God to listen. He pleads for the ear to listen to the words, for the mind to consider what he has to say, and then for God's attention in general, both of ear and of mind. Listen to me. Now, there are times, I'm sure, when we call on God in distress and perhaps when confronted with the wicked, that we feel this strongly. Lord, I need your attention. But a bigger issue in our prayers, I believe, is our own lack of attention. Most of us, I dare say, don't come away from prayer feeling that God wasn't listening. It's more like I wasn't listening. There are many times when I have found my own petitions trailing off, and suddenly I'm thinking about what film to watch next, what to have for dinner. David prays for God to pay attention. I think you and I need to be praying for ourselves to pay attention. How can you ask God to listen to what you're saying if you won't listen to what you're saying? Right? To ask God to listen is a mark of confidence. Lord, I know that if you hear me, if you listen to what I'm saying, you will act and you will save. But this own lack of attention that we have towards our prayers is highlighted by the end of verse 3. The last action of prayer looking up, watching for the answer. The psalmist not only pays attention to what he asks, he pays attention to God's response. And he does that because of how he prays. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you will I pray. What are the actions of prayer? The first one, of course, is simply to cry out to God. That's what prayer is. It's just talking. It doesn't even have to be verbal. It is simply petitioning God, whether you're doing that mentally, Lord, help me, or verbally, actually saying the words, it is looking towards God and needing his help. David, the king, calls on him, not just as a king and a God, but as my king and my God. Listen to me, my king, my God, that pre-existing covenant relationship whereby God is his, is the foundation of prayer. If you or I were to call upon the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, and to say, help me, my Prime Minister, he would say, I'm not your Prime Minister. You're not one of my constituents. I don't represent you. Yeah, okay, I'm getting Kenny. Eddie, you've got to go back to the row. I'm not your Prime Minister. That's what he would say. Go to someone else. Go to your own leader. If you ask an Indian leader for help, he'll say, I don't help Americans, I help Indians. Makes sense. But David calls on God as his own. My king, my God. To cry out to God is the first action of prayer. And of course, the king here says, in the morning I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning. In the morning I will direct it to you. That's how much he needs God. He doesn't get through every part of the day and then say, well, I guess I should maybe pray a little bit today. He starts the day saying, 
I'm going to need your help today, my king and my God. He calls upon God in the morning, and it certainly does not hurt us to do the same. So he says, I have my voice you shall hear in the morning. And then he says, in the morning I will arrange my prayer. Well, that's a strange word to use to describe prayer. To arrange prayer. Now, as usual in the scripture, if you see something that seems just a little bit strange, the first thing you should look to is your concordance. Where else does this word appear? One of the best examples of this is in Revelation 19, where God says, I will punish you, Babylon, because your merchants are the great ones of the earth. What? How is that relevant? Well, of course, if you go back to Ezekiel, you'll see that John is quoting Ezekiel, who says that Tyre's merchants were the great ones of the earth, and it's a clear reference back to something in Ezekiel. In the same way, this word arrange, if you look at it in your concordance, you will see that it appears many, many times in the Pentateuch. To arrange is a technical term for what you do to the pieces of the offering that you place on the wood. Thus, Genesis 22, when they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. The same word appears again in Leviticus many times as a description of what the priests are to do. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, on top of the burning wood on the altar, Leviticus 1.8. The king says he will arrange his prayer. It's a technical term that says, I will present my prayer to you the same way a priest presents a sacrifice to you. What does that mean? Well, you should think of prayer as presenting your desires and requests before God the same way a priest presents a sacrifice before God. You have to give these things to God unreservedly. To present a request to Him, to pray to Him, is not to insist on getting the answer you envision. It is an offering up, quite literally, where you're saying, Lord, this is what I would like. I'm putting this into your care. I know you will answer the best way. Maybe you will give me something that I can't even imagine. Or you might tell me no. That's okay. I am offering my request. To arrange prayer means to make your prayer a sacrifice, something you give to God. Thus, for instance, Lord, I would really like health, and I would really like it right now. You arrange that like a sacrifice, and you say, Lord, my health belongs to you. I would like you to give me health. But your will be done. That's what prayer means. Saying, God, give me help. And if you don't, I will hate you. That's not prayer. That's a demand and that doesn't work very well. You don't insist on the right to have your own thoughts and desires back the way you wanted them. You give them up. You let God have them. And then you watch. Verse 4, the end of verse 3. I will look up. That is, you should imagine the psalmist kneeling in prayer. He asks, he offers his desires to God, and then he looks up. 
And what is he looking for? He is looking for the answer to his prayers. Calling to God is important. That's a key part of prayer. But looking for the answer should not be neglected. The psalmist, the king, waits to see how God will answer his prayer. He gives some reasons then as well for the things he requests. These reasons in this psalm relate to God's attitude toward evil. We should give reasons for what we pray. You are speaking to God as a man speaks to his friend, as one rational being, in a sense, to another. Don't just say, Lord, here's what I would like. Explain why you would like it. Explain why you understand that it's something he would like. That's what the king does. He describes God to himself. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Evil shall not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. God is totally separated from anything evil. It's spoken of in spatial and visual terms. God will not look at evil. God will not allow evil in his presence. He is utterly, totally separated from it. In God's house, you won't find that the butler did it. God's staff is as incorruptible as he is. No one, right? Evil will not dwell with him. The boastful will not stand in his sight. This is a motive for prayer. Why should we pray against the evil that's all around us? Because God hates it. God is utterly separated from it. That's a motive for prayer. Because God stands against evil, we can call to him and ask him to deal with the evil. This is an argument that we should present in prayer. There is much evil rampant in the world. Obviously, we all know that. Give us 10 seconds and we typically start talking about it. At least the males among us do. The psalmist cries out to God regarding that. And he says, God, you are incorruptible. You are absolutely separate from evil. Later on, the psalm will refer to the wicked as watchers. That's in verse 8, probably not reflected in your translation. It literally says, Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my watchers, the ones who are dogging the footsteps of the Lord's anointed. The wicked are watching the king. They're waiting for him to slip up and be overthrown, but God is not watching them. God won't look at their evil. Or rather, insofar as his eyes are on them, he is looking at them in hostility. He is looking toward their destruction. The boastful will not stand in his sight. They may come into his sight, but they won't remain there long. Just as the wicked will not stand in the judgment, Psalm 1, so the boastful shall not stand in the sight of God. And in fact, the psalm goes on to tell us that God destroys evildoers. You shall destroy liars, those who speak falsehood. And verse 5, you hate all workers of iniquity. You thought God loves everybody? That's the Apocrypha that says that. The book of Wisdom, chapter 11, verse 24, thou lovest all things that exist and hast loathing for none of the things which thou hast made. For thou wouldst not have made anything if thou hadst hated it. Well, that may be partially true. 
that God hates nothing he has made insofar as he made it. But the canonical Bible, Psalm 5, says right here, you hate all workers of iniquity. Not just that God is slightly less favorable towards the workers of iniquity, but he hates them. I once read a book by, uh, let's say, a rather liberal Christian who said she had taught her daughter, God loves everybody. And she made the mistake of not only teaching her daughter this, but also teaching her daughter some Bible stories. They got to a particular one from 1 Samuel, and they read the whole story, and the little girl said, But Mommy, didn't God love Goliath? Didn't God love... God hates the workers of iniquity. The story of what the king, what the Lord's anointed does to Goliath, is not a story about how much God loves Goliath. It simply is not. This is how God feels about the workers of iniquity. He hates them. God loved the world. God saves the world. But God hates those who persist in their sin. That's a tough topic for us to think about at the best of times in our culture, thanks to the influence of newspeak, to say that God hates something almost sounds like it doesn't mean anything. Like the sentence, big brother is ungood, right? You put that together, God hates the workers of iniquity, and people just say, no, that can't be right. I didn't hear that. But that is what the psalm says. God is extremely unfavorably disposed toward the workers of iniquity, and he manifests that hatred by destroying the liars, the bloodthirsty, and the deceitful. That's bad news for us. Everyone in this room has told a lie. And God destroys liars. That destruction that we deserve has only been averted by Jesus standing between the Father's wrath and us. No wonder this psalm ends with the declaration that God surrounds his people with his grace like a shield. That's exactly what Jesus did. That's why we can read and sing and celebrate this psalm. Not that we read it and say, I'm George Washington, I've never told a lie. Rather because we say, Jesus Christ never told a lie. There was no deceit in his mouth. And by his salvation, I can take my stand on the side of the righteous. I can call on God as my God and my King. I can say, don't class me with the liars Don't drag me away with the sinners because you're my God through your Son. If the wicked are rampant, just wait. God will catch up to them. Whatever wickedness you see in the world, Psalm 5 assures you God hates it. God will deal with it. Don't say, like the Israelites of Malachi's day did, oh, God doesn't mind wickedness. In fact, he likes the wicked. He sure made a lot of them. No, he didn't make them wicked. They made themselves wicked. God hates them in their wickedness. And if you're guilty tonight, hide yourself in Jesus. Find cleansing in him. And of course, turn away from being a man of bloodshed and deceit. Obviously, if God hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, Don't be 
that man. In Christ, you can tell the truth. You can give up your passion for bloodthirstiness or whatever your sin is. God hates that, and he will help you stop it. So that's a few reasons that the king gives for his prayer. God's attitude towards sin. God hates the wicked. God takes absolutely no pleasure in wickedness. So the king prays against the wicked. And of course, he says, Evil shall not dwell with you, but I will come into your house. Verse 4 and verse 7. The wicked are cast out of God's presence, expelled from God's house, but the king has free access to both. Yet even there, he doesn't say, as for me, I will come into your house because it's my house too. He says, I will come into your house in the multitude of your steadfast love. Because you love me so much, you have welcomed me in. It's through the love of Christ, through God's love, that the king is able to enter God's house. This is not a right that he has. This is something he has received as a love gift from God. And because he loves you, enter his house. Pray to him there. Where does God dwell? He dwells in the church. We are the temple of the living God. This is a place of prayer. Prayer's location in the house of God. And in fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. God's temple is no longer in Jerusalem. We talked about that at length this morning. What does it mean to worship towards God's temple? Where is the temple of God? Well, it is the body of Jesus Christ. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking of the temple of his body. To pray towards God's temple is not to attempt to face Jerusalem, to get out your map and compass and turn your body a certain direction. It means to pray toward Jesus. We said earlier that prayer is directing your thoughts, your needs, your desires toward God, offering them up to Him. This verse tells us that we do it through Christ. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. That is, I will orient my life and myself to Jesus and I will pray through him, which is what we signify every time we say, in Jesus' name, amen. We're not like Daniel finding the upper window that faces Jerusalem and praying that direction. We are praying towards Christ, through Christ, to the Father who hears So if you want to be strengthened in prayer, go to God's house and pray toward Jesus. And vice versa, if you want to be weakened in prayer, stay out of God's house and don't pray toward Jesus. This is how the king prays. He comes into God's house. He prays toward Jesus and he leads us in that and shows us how we too ought to pray with the people of God toward the Son of God. Well, what does the king ask? Now that he's said, I will pray, here's why I will pray, you hate wickedness, here's where I will pray, in your house, toward your temple, uh, which, right, in physical terms, verse 7 
is self-contradictory. I will come into your house and then I will pray towards your temple. If you're already inside, how can you pray towards the temple? Right? It's a spiritual meaning in that verse to say, I will be where you are and I will worship towards you. Well, so what does he pray? Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. That's his first petition. Lead me in your righteousness. The first request is a request not to be like the wicked. I need to be led. And I need to be led in righteousness. Without your guidance, Lord, I will be like the people around me. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But the counsel of the wicked is pervasive. It is omnipresent. I shut off one pundit and I turn on the next. Shut off that pundit, turn on the next. They're all part of the world industrial complex. This request then is motivated by the pervasive counsel of the wicked. Lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. One of the biggest things the world does is create a pattern for living and train whole cultures and civilizations in that pattern. That's what we call walking in the counsel of the wicked. And to do that, to accept the wicked's counsel, is to accept the non-Christian, anti-God pattern for living and to live in accordance with it. This is, by the way, probably a bigger threat than either being deceitful or being bloodthirsty. It's possible that one of us could go become a serial killer. God forbid. What's far, far more likely is that one of us would walk in the counsel of the wicked and just gradually, more and more, believe that, you know, what the world says is okay. Then God doesn't really hate the wicked. Come on. God doesn't do things like that. God is very open and accepting and loving, just like we are. No, right? That's why the king prays, lead me in righteousness. Don't let me fall to my enemies. The enemies don't just want to kill the king. They want to corrupt the king. They want to make the king like themselves. To be led in righteousness refers to walking in the way of duty and obedience. And it also refers to being made righteous by Christ's death in your place. That's how the king wants to be led. And that is how you and I want to be led. You won't walk in that way without God's leading. You won't stay upright without prayer. Without God's leading, you will walk right off the path like the dwarves in Mirkwood. And you very well may not find it again. Lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies who want to corrupt me and lead me away from your righteousness. They ask God, make your way straight before my face. Show me what your way is. Rather than the way that the wicked counsel me to take, I want to know your way and I need you to show it to me. The king prays for God to show his ways, which are described in scripture. The ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them. As I just said, this way is the way of duty and obedience to God's law. It's the way of being made righteous by Jesus' death. The king's second petition 
reject the wicked. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Well, in verse 9, he describes the wicked again. There is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inner part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. He lays four charges against the wicked, all on this subject of lying. God will destroy those who speak lies. The king says, you destroy liars, my enemies are liars. So he asks God as judge to pronounce them guilty. And then he asks God to punish them with poetic justice. Let them fall by their own counsels. As he talks about later on in verse or in Psalm 7, Psalm 9, the wicked makes a pit and digs it out and falls into the pit which he made. His trouble shall return on his own head. His violent dealings shall come down on his own crown. The wicked sow the seeds of their own destruction. And the king prays that those seeds would sprout and destroy them. Cast them out. Reject them. For they have rebelled against you. Is this prayer compatible with loving your neighbor? Can we ask God to get rid of the wicked while also saying, oh, I love my neighbor. I'm just praying that God would destroy him right now. Just like God loved Goliath. Well, these petitions are righteous. We know that up front. They come from the lips of God's king. And the king's job is to cut off and cast out the wicked, Psalm 101. It is his job because he rules on the Lord's behalf, and the Lord will do these things to the wicked. And therefore, his king must do them as well. Imagine, if you would, that you have a bookkeeper in your business who's stealing the salaries of the other employees. And one of the employees comes to you and starts to complain and says, Hey, the bookkeeper is taking money out of my check every month. And you say, Get over it. That's not very loving to your neighbor to ask me to, to get rid of him. Why are you saying such a thing? Don't you love your neighbor? Right, we too are kings and priests to God. It is our job to see the overthrow and casting out of the wicked within the domains that we rule. You don't tolerate within your business a dishonest bookkeeper who's stealing from the other employees. No more does God tolerate within his domain these liars or other kinds of sinners. We're only asking God to do his job when we pray for him to cast out the wicked and let them fall through their own wickedness. We are loving our neighbor. We're loving our neighbor who is the victim of the wicked's aggression. We are loving our neighbor who is in the world's stranglehold when we say, Lord, cut off the wicked. Cast them out. Bring their plans to nothing. The wicked are evil, and therefore it is right to pray against their evil schemes. We can and should pray against the activities of villainous organizations like Planned Parenthood, the Gay-Straight Alliance, parents and friends of lesbians, right there, uh, probably all of us in this room could list 15 or 20 evil organizations right off the top of our heads. The NGO complex is astonishing. It's large, it's well-funded, it's all around us. There's no faithfulness in its mouth. Its inward part is destruction. 
They flatter with their tongues. It's exactly what the king is talking about, among other things. And he prays against these groups that represent the wicked and that represent the world. And he says, cast them out because they have rebelled against you. We don't just ignore the wicked. We pray against the wicked. This all fits under the petition of the Lord's Prayer that says, deliver us from evil. Well, Paul takes this verse in which the king describes his personal enemies and he applies it to the entire human race in Romans chapter 3. Why does he do that? Well, it's because David's enemies opposed him because he was God's king. That's why Paul can take this verse and generalize it to apply it to the whole human race. Everyone is born opposing Christ and standing against his righteousness. The enemies of David are his enemies because he is the Lord's anointed. And thus, all of us are born this way. Inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And God will not stand for it. His third petition is to give the righteous joy. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. This triple joy the psalmist asks for. And this too, obviously, is our responsibility as kings and priests to God to reward the righteous, to favor them, to bless them. This is the reward of hiding in Christ from the wrath of God. We need to pray for this joy. Just as walking in God's path is not automatic but requires prayer, so rejoicing in God's gift of salvation is not automatic but requires prayer. Pray for joy and exemplify it. Shout, rejoice, be joyful. Why? Because God will bless the righteous. This is the confidence of prayer. You, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. That's why we pray. We know that God is already going. He's predisposed to cut off the wicked, and so we pray for that. We pray for his will to be done. We know that he will bless the righteous with joy, that he will take us to heaven, the place of ultimate joy. And we pray for that. Do you have confidence when you pray? Are you certain that this is a joyful activity that is very rewarding? You would if you prayed like the king who arranged his prayer like a sacrifice and then looked for the answer. He had confidence in prayer because he had seen God answer many times. You and I can have that same confidence if we will simply pray and look for the answers. God the Father blessed his son and surrounded him with favor. If you are in Christ, this blessing is yours as well. Jesus, the great prayer warrior, the high priest who prays on your behalf, he's the one, he is God's king. So take heart, pray like heaven, and you will be heard. Father, we thank you that you will cut off and destroy the workers of iniquity. We pray against Planned Parenthood. And Father, we pray against the many, many other wicked organizations and institutions and individuals 
that crawl on the surface of this world. Destroy them, cast them out, reject them, because you are not a God who tolerates evil. You hate the workers of iniquity. Help us to believe that, to understand that, and thus to see the magnitude of our salvation in Christ. We weren't saved from a God who was a little upset. We were saved from the wrath of a God who hates passionately the wickedness in which we were engaged. Father, thank you for your salvation, that those who are on the side of the wicked can be saved, transformed, brought into the camp of the righteous, surrounded with your favor as a shield. So lead us in straight paths. Show us your ways. Make your way straight before our face. Reject the wicked. Give us joy because we put our trust in you. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.